1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman-Newfield. Jean Jaurès was a towering intellectual and political leader of the democratic left at the turn of the 20th century, but he is little remembered today outside of France, and his contributions to political thought are little studied anywhere. In Jean Jaurès, The Inner Life of Social Democracy, published by... Uh, Penn State University Press in 2016, Uh, Jeffrey Kurtz introduces Jean Jerez to an American audience. Jeffrey Kurtz is a friend of mine and colleague um, at the Borough of Manhattan Community College, where he is an associate professor of political science. Jeffrey, welcome to our program. Hi, it's good to be here. So uh, to get started, could you tell us about your background and what led you to write this work? So I first uh, became
0: aware of Jaurès when I was in graduate school. This was in the, what, early 2000s uh, at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And one of the topics that I was studying was the history of socialist political thought. Um, and, yeah, you know, obviously that involves reading a lot of Karl Marx and other people who are widely recognized as major social theorists or philosophers in the, in the socialist tradition, but it also involved, involved reading the political history, um, of, of especially European left politics. And when I was reading, I think the book in particular was, uh, John Joel's short and excellent history of the second international, which was the, um, International Confederation of, of Labor and Socialist Parties, late 19th, early 20th century. A great book, by the way, for people who want to start on the history of that movement. I was reading that book and I kept noticing that this guy Jaurès was showing up again and again. And that on every, it seemed to me, with what, about a century of hindsight on that period, that on every important debate that the left was having in those years, he was on the right side. The positions that he took made sense, looking back 100 years later, in a way that most he seemed to have an insight into his own circumstances, a wisdom about his own circumstances that most of his colleagues lacked. And so I wanted to know, how, how was this guy thinking? What were the ways of looking at politics, the ways of thinking about political life that were behind the sound judgments that he kept making? And I found out that I just admired the guy. Um, and I have to say thinking about you know thinking about this interview with you today i looked at look back at my book again. It's been a few years since i <laughs> one of the things that struck me was that I was reminded of was just how much affection for this for this man I have, and I understand you know i so I hadn't heard of him or at least hadn't remembered hearing him before I was in graduate school but if 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 you and I had grown up in france um Chances are that whatever town we grew up in, if they had had a left-wing mayor any time in the past century, there was a Jean Jaurès Street, a Rue Jean Jaurès. There's probably an École Jean Jaurès, a Jean Jaurès Elementary School. I mean, if if we'd grown up in France, we would have known his name, you know, like the way that Americans know names like, you know, Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King. Uh, But outside of France, he hasn't had that much attention. Uh, from historians and scholars. A few people have looked at him, but not that many. So I sort of, so I ran across his name. I was fascinated. Um, The European left history was not the only thing I was interested in. Uh, I was also very interested in American political thought. And uh, I was, as graduate students do, casting around for a dissertation topic. And I was really um, resistant to the idea of writing about this French guy. I wanted to write about American topics, but I kept finding myself drawn back to him. And and I have gone back to writing about um, American topics in recent years. And I think that in some ways, having studied Jaurès has has better prepared me uh, to do that for some reasons, maybe we'll get into. So that's how it began. I wrote a dissertation about him. After I wrote the dissertation, um, I wrote the book, which is really a separate project from what my dissertation was it's there's it's a separate argument very little text overlaps between the two um but i was fascinated enough by him and convinced that he had interesting things to say that even when i was done with the dissertation i wanted to keep thinking about him i saw his political thought and his life as good a good what's the word not a venue a good material to use for thinking through questions of how do you pursue ideals of solidarity and social justice in the modern world how do you do that in a way that is politically meaningful that's that's um that's relevant and effective, and also that takes seriously those ideals as ideals. And so, those are problems that are still with us. You know, if you want to, I guess you could say those are the problems of the democratic left. That's how I would. That's the, the phrase that I would tend to use. And Jarez remains, I think, one of the best guides to thinking through those problems.
1: Right, and we're going to get into the kind of uh, contemporary implications um, of Jerez's work, uh, hopefully towards the end of our of our discussion. But to get started, um, it, and I agree with you that it's very clear as someone who read the book that you have very warm feelings towards Jerez. I think it comes through very clearly throughout your writing about him, and. Uh, To get us started to thinking about Jerez, could you tell us a little bit more about the man? Who was he? And what was the political context in which he was operating, he was thinking, and he was writing uh, at the time?
0: So he's born in 1859 um, in the Tarn region in southern France. Uh, which was at the time mostly an agricultural region. There was a little bit of industry and mining, but it was mostly farm country. Um, that's where he grows up. He gets his early education there, as was often the case with at French education at the time. His, his schooling was heavy on the classics, the Greek and Latin classics. He was a student uh a little later on, when he was a teenager, he moves to Paris to a kind of preparatory school to to, to, get, to attend a kind of preparatory school to get him ready for the uh, École Normale Supérieure, which was the university for academics and civil servants. Um, and he excels at the École Normale. He is a classmate, by the way, of... Um, Emile Durkheim, who any, anyone with a sociological education in your audience is going to know who Durkheim was. They were friends. Uh, he's also a classmate. The philosophers will know uh, Henry or Henri Bergson. So those are his. Those are some of his contemporaries, um, whom scholars and, and and people with philosophy or sociology education might know. So he does this education. He is not immediately engaged in politics when he's a young man, but he finds that his his studies in Philosophy, especially classical philosophy, are pushing him toward political considerations. So, um, at the time when he's uh, a student, France has again become a republic. The what's what's called France's Third Republic is um, established in the early 1870s. While he's during his student years, since the French Revolution of the 80s and 90s, France had gone through a series of monarchies, republics, constitutional monarchies, dictatorships, a series of, re- of regimes quite different from one another. Um, but neither of the two previous republics, the Revolutionary Republic of the 1790s or the late 1840s Second Republic, neither of them had lasted very long. The Third Republic turned out to be have more longevity. Um so the, the, the central debate of French politics when Chorez is young is are you for or against having a republic as the system of government? Should we have representative democracy or should we reestablish some form of monarchy or um, dictatorship in the style of Napoleon Bonaparte? Should there be legal recognition of individual rights or should government have more arbitrary authority? Uh, should there be such a thing as public education? Is is the formation of citizens, civic education, one of the important roles of a political system? These were the kinds of questions that people were debating. So he gets engaged in these questions. As a young man, he becomes involved in Republican politics, meaning he's a supporter of this new elected uh, government. He's He's... Involved in electoral politics, and he gets drawn um, during his first term in the Chamber of Deputies, the French Parliament. This would have been, you know, I'm I'm blanking on the dates in the 18th. Century, he's a, oh, quite a young man. Uh, he he gets he's he makes his first important political decision in terms of aligning himself, which is that he can choose whether to be. Certainly whether to be a monarchist, he's not a monarchist, but with among the Republicans, he can choose the Republican faction that is more, and this is probably how he would have put it, I'm sure others might have characterized it differently, that is more rigid in its program and ideology, and more intellectually indebted to the the Jacobins, the faction that had led the bloodiest period of the French Revolution in the 1790s. Um, Does he align with them? Or does he align with the less ideological, more pragmatic faction of of Republicans, those who are somewhat unfortunately labeled the opportunists? And interestingly, he chooses the opportunists, um, which is a clue to some of his, a first indicator of some of his later thinking. He loses an election uh, after his, his first term and returns to scholarly work. He, in the early 1890s, completes two the two dissertations that you had to write to become, uh, to have a the equivalent of a PhD. It was called a doctorate in letters, a, sort of a humanities PhD uh, in philosophy. Um, and at the same time, he's getting involved in local politics. At this point, he lives in the city of Toulouse, and he gets himself elected to the Toulouse City Council. He's involved in... Um, supporting or advocating, even during his first term in parliament, he's involved in advocating for labor unions in his home region. That's his other early political inclination. He wants to be aligned with labor unions, and he wants to be pragmatic uh, about his political engagements. Those are his two earliest political commitments. So he's getting involved in the labor movement. He's involved in local electoral politics, and he's studying philosophy. And this is, this is one of the things that maybe seems puzzling, right? You, you, we'd sometimes categorize, um, people as intellectuals or activists. And part of what I've, this is maybe getting back to your initial question. So why I, I wanted to write about him is I, I realized, you know, in the course of my own education that I was most interested in the, for lack of a better term, engaged thinkers. Um, people who were writing about and thinking about politics from the point of view of involvement, from the point of view of immediate questions. Because it seems to me, it has has seemed to me for a long time, that if you take immediate questions of political involvement seriously, if you really think about what you're doing, you end up thinking about all of the things you might uh, categorize as philosophical or theoretical questions. But you do so in a way that's intimately connected with your own time and place, your own political involvements. Um, So maybe I'll end up saying more about that. But I think that that is part of what I tried to convey in the book is the value of doing political theory from that perspective of of engagement, thinking philosophy, broadly speaking, from the perspective of engagement. So anyway, so Jaurès is kind of engaged philosopher from the beginning. Uh, So at that time, to get a doctorate in letters in France, you wrote two dissertations, uh, which, for those of you listening who've written dissertations, it's not quite as bad as it sounds. because <laughs> the <laughs> dissertation, in one way, it's not as bad as it sounds. The scope of a dissertation at that time was something more like what we might associate with a master's thesis, where it was just kind of a more of a booklet than a book. Uh, but the, the way in which it was really onerous was that your second doctoral thesis had to be in Latin. Um, which was, there was this sense in the French Third Republic that in some way they needed to hearken back to the ancient Roman Republic to re- retain some connection with classical culture. So I think that was the origin of this. So he writes a dissertation, which is in metaphysics, um, about the question of reality. Is the sensible world, the, the physical world, real? And then he writes a second dissertation, a Latin dissertation on the German socialist movement. And I'll probably wanna say a little bit about both of those, but just to finish the big story, he writes these dissertations and then he returns to parliament, he's reelected. This time his involvement in, in supporting labor unions has led him to be identified as a socialist and he embraces that idea. He, he runs as a socialist, he joins the small collection of socialists in parliament. And then for the rest of his political career, and he's in parliament for most of the rest of his life, there's one period later on when he's out of parliament, when he does a lot of writing, he's in parliament, he becomes quickly, he's a fantastic orator, he's really talented at speech making, uh, and at political um, negotiation, I mean, he's good at holding together disparate groups, and the socialists in France were really fascinatingly if that's a word varied in their thinking right this was not a monoculture of a single ideology this, this there were many ideas that went under the label socialist um Jerez becomes a leader among these fractious socialists and for the rest of his career he's trying to figure out a way to have a form of left-wing politics politics focused on equality and social solidarity Uh, that is deeply we would probably say democratic i mean in the sense of being um, based on the idea that many people should have a political voice the word used in france at the time was republican Uh, so he's a he's deeply committed to the french republic as a as a political model and he wants to be a socialist and he's as those varied french socialists split into two distinct camps around the beginning of the 20th century that they become the division becomes binary you're on this side or on that side he ends up being the leader of the uh uh reformist that was the word that was used at the time the reformist non-revolutionary wing of the french socialist movement and he is prominent internationally at various international socialist congresses and gatherings as a spokesman for reformist democratic socialism in the great debates between reformists and revolutionaries at the beginning of the 20th century he really um i think reaches the peak of his uh career as a spokesman as a tribune for ideas but he's politically defeated he is has helps to bring about some modest reforms in France as part of a big left to center political coalition but within the socialist movement he's by the by 1905 1906 his side seems to have lost the revolutionaries are the ones who are winning the debates winning the votes he's he ends up as the leader of a socialist party united socialist party in france that is founded by rejecting the ideas that he's stood for for years he's the leader because he's so talented uh because people like him and trust him but he's the reformist who's the leader of an of an ostensibly revolutionary party and he switches in the in the 19 teens focusing on international questions Questions of peace and in the last couple of years leading up to the first world war um leading up to the summer of 1914 he becomes arguably the leading spokesperson not just in france but in europe for peace the leading voice for peace and he is assassinated on the last day of july 1914 a few days later france is at war right all
1: right all right well- Right. Well, that's a wonderful, a really uh, uh, wonderful um, introduction for our listeners of the biography of um, Jerez. So um, now to to step back a little bit and uh, and kind of highlight some points along the way. Uh, you wrote that Social Democrats, quote, valued the continued possibility of dissent, Over the perfect realization of principles, and that Jerez was uh, 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 an exemplar of this position. What did you mean by that?
0: So I'll start with the term social democrat or social democracy. In Jerez's generation, the terms socialism, socialism, communism, social democracy were used more or less interchangeably some slight differences of connotation among them, but more or less interchangeably. But in the after the 19-teens, especially after the Russian Revolution of 1917, people start to use these terms in um, more clearly defined, clearly differentiated ways. And people start using the term social democracy to mean democratic, reformist socialism of the type that Xorez had already stood for. So in I just want to be clear, in applying that term to him, I'm doing... I'm thinking retrospectively, I guess you could say anachronistically, but it's the term since his lifetime that has come to be associated with, with the kind of politics he stood for. So what I meant about in, about um, in, in the line that you quoted, uh, I would define social democracy in the sense of you know what Jaurès and others of similar views have stood for as being the view that socialism is best understood not as a model of society, like a blueprint for society that could, at least in principle, be fully realized at some point. It's not that. That's a different view. Social Democrats, I would say, are socialists who see socialism as a set of values or ideals or principles. And values and ideals and principles, by definition, cannot be, realized in some full, perfect, absolute way. So if you see socialism, for example, as a kind of fusion of the principles of solidarity and equality or fraternity and equality, what what, what is perfect solidarity and equality look like in this world? Well, there, there is no model. And so there's a kind of, I guess you could call it imperfectionism or fallibilism built in uh, there's a sense that you're always going to be working to realize these ideas. You'll always be working at them. No matter how many victories your movement achieves, there's not going to be a final victory. Um, there's, and and, and there's, by the same token, there's not going to be a final defeat either, right? You can always do something to bring the principle of solidarity to life in the world. You can always do something to bring the principle of equality to life in the world. And so it, it, Jorès says in his metaphysics dissertation, speaking about moral life and the pursuit of justice in general, he says, the battle is never wholly won, the battle is never wholly lost. And so that's that's the attitude that I was trying to capture there. And I think that what makes Jorès such a fascinating thinker is that in his academic work, uh, as a philosopher and later as a historian, I skip that part um, and in his political life, he's always trying to wrestle with that question how do you how do you think about political activity, political involvement when you don't assume that the goals you're working towards are goals that can be fully realized? And so what this leads to what that perspective leads to is, what I would think of as the the problem of or the question of hope. If you think of social justice or socialism or equality as a model of society that can be realized at some point in the future, then your political activity is probably going to be oriented by the hope that that model will actually be realized. And then you get crushed or disappointed when you when you see that it hasn't been realized uh, but i mean it, for for socialists and Juarez generation i think this idea of the full realization of socialism a perfectly socialist or as they might have said a, a fully communist society since they use those terms interchangeably is on the horizon it's going to happen it's going to happen how soon um Maybe in our lifetimes, maybe in our lifetimes. Um, if you have that expectation, then, well, that's a certain kind of hope, right? The problem, of course, is that, well, there are a number of problems, one of which is that that hope might be crushed. You might, it, political defeats and disappointments that may happen so that you can't plausibly honestly authentically hold on to that kind of hope anymore and then you're in trouble then you're in trouble the other problem is that that kind of hope might be not the best way to orient your politics in the first place even while you're holding on to it but more fundamentally maybe maybe I can explain what I mean by that if I explain what I think like what Jaurès's alternative uh, to that would be and that's that one of the consistent uh, uh, motifs, recurring motifs in genre's thought, is this idea that if you understand your political objective as an ideal, as, as something that can't, in principle cannot be fully realized, by definition can't be realized, um, then in some ways that frees you up to notice the ways that the ideal has been realized in imperfect ways, the ways that the ideal is present with us, present with you already in hidden or modest or um, incomplete ways. And that itself can be a kind of orienting hope.
1: Right. And um, um, so uh, Jerez, um, you say that Jerez... um, um, argued that the spirit of social of German socialism uh, should not be uncritically adopted by socialists outside of Germany, but at the same time it couldn't be ignored by them either. What do you mean by that? Mm. So,
0: since since when? I'm not sure how to date this, but for a long time now, many people on the left, the political left, have taken for granted that to be an intellectually serious person on the left, you have to be a Marxist. You have to be steeped in the political thought of Karl Marx, political and social thought. And Jaurès would be the last person to tell you not to spend some time reading Marx. Uh, He spent a lot of time reading and thinking about Marx. But in a way that maybe seems alien to people on the left in our time, uh, in his time, you didn't necessarily assume that intellectually serious socialism was synonymous with Marxism. So this is especially true for people like Jaurès who are not German. I mean, one of the things that really came through to me in reading Jaurès and other people in that generation is the extent to which people at that time saw Marx's political thought as a, a peculiar product of Germany. It was a sort of a local delicacy, right? Imported from Germany. Um, uh, and they had their own, in France, they had their own intellectual traditions. Some people, in, some people on the French left in Jaurès' time would have traced their thinking back to the, the Jacobins, people like Robespierre during the French Revolution. Some would have looked to later thinkers like Pierre-Joseph Proudhon with his vision of a decentralized federation of many democracies. Proudhon is sometimes characterized as an anarchist, but I think probably a decentralist Democrat would be a better better description. Um, they had their own homegrown intellectual traditions, and other countries had theirs as well. Uh, so for Jaurès and his comrades, there were a couple of questions about about Marxist political thought. One was, actually, no, I'll back up, German political thought, German socialist thought, which was not just Marxist. I mean, we often forget the other great uh, thinker of German socialism in the late 19th century, Ferdinand LaSalle. Um, so around 1890, around the time that Jaurès is writing his second dissertation, his Latin dissertation on German socialist thought, the German left party, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, SPD, officially adopts Marxism as its point of view, as its political stance up until that time the german left had been at least in two main intellectual camps the french had you know half a dozen the french were a lot more varied than the germans Uh, but this idea that you should that it was appealing to have a kind of marxist monoculture of thought was a new idea and so i this is a roundabout answer to your question i'll get back to Jaurès, but just to establish the context a little bit um uh uh, the the variety the variety intellectual variety of socialist thought in europe in the 1870s and 80s is part of what's you know so interesting and this idea of that left parties would would routinely describe themselves as marxist that doesn't happen until the 1890s and part of why it happens i'm tempted to say the main reason um those of you, you know, listening who are political scientists, uh, if you're keeping score, you could think of this as a an attempt to have a historical institutionalist uh, description of the the rise of Marxism. I would say that when left parties in Europe, labor and socialist parties in Europe in the 1890s, were looking around for ways of organizing themselves right how do you set up a political party what kind of a role do you have for central leadership bodies local groups your party journal publications the model that they mostly looked to was the german model because the germans had an unusually centralized political system it was a kind of constitutional monarchy heavy on the monarchy side Highly centralized. And that means that German socialists had to have a very centralized, coherent, organized political party. The French, with a somewhat less centralized system, could get away with having. Into more or less independent regional and local organizations in a very loose confederation, which incidentally was also the model of the American socialist party at the beginning of the 20th century, very decentralized. Uh, but the Germans had this really attractive organizational model. And when new left parties in the 1890s, that was the decade of big growth in uh, left parties being, being founded and getting more voters. When they were looking for organizational models, it makes sense. They gravitated toward the Germans. They had a kind of, uh, uh, some people will be insulted by this, but sort of the political equivalent of a McDonald's franchise, right? It was a replicable model. And part of what came with that model, part of the branding that came with that model was Marxism as an ideology. So you're looking for a convenient, convenient replicable model model of how to organize a political party, you look to the Germans. While you're at it, you may as well adopt their ideology too. So Jaurès is both fascinated by Marxism and a little wary of it. And in his uh thesis on german socialist thought and you can say similar things about some of his later writings he's trying to strike this balance between being appreciative after all he's a good internationalist he's not a he's a french patriot but not a chauvinist he's not against learning from other countries in fact he thinks it's kind of fun but he thinks that the german intellectual tradition gets some things right that the French tend to miss. And he thinks that the French intellectual tradition gets at least a few things right that the Germans, at least by his generation, tend to miss. So for there are things in Marxism that he wants to re, uh, either reject or at least hold in tension with other things, right? to not take on as the answer. Um, but the thing he finds most interesting in the German intellectual tradition is what he calls dialectical thinking. Um, and he sees this as a tradition that long predates Marx, long predates uh, Hegel, the dialectical philosopher who influences Marx, and really traces back to Martin Luther and to the Protestant Reformation. So this is kind of weird. It's kind of surprising. You have this French ostensibly secular, although maybe when I come back to that, he's really kind of ambiguously secular. But this ostensibly secular socialist who writes a dissertation that you think is going to be about Marx because it says it's about Germans. The title says it's about German socialism. And then most of the book is about Martin Luther. What's going on here? So that's the first thing to notice is that this, the thing he wants to take from, uh, Marxism, the thing he thinks is most important, is actually something that derives from Christian theology. Um, He attributes it to Luther, but honestly, I think you could trace it back to St. Augustine, which is where Luther gets most of his best stuff. Um, And Augustine does show up occasionally. There's a citation or two in Jorah's first thesis. He's he's aware that St. Augustine is behind all of this. But okay, here's the point. What Jaurès means by dialectical thinking is probably not what you think he thinks if you're used to standard accounts of Marx's and Hegel's thought. What Jaurès means by a dialectic is the reconciliation of two things that seem to be opposites. It's holding in tension two things that seem to be contrary. So for example, he he notices that Marx likes to characterize himself as a materialist thinker. He's concerned with visible, tangible things that happen in the world, like your day at the factory, for example. And Joris says, this is right. We should pay attention to this stuff. But to be truly dialectical, we need to hold that attention to material or sensible reality in tension with moral questions questions of ideals questions of justice even theological questions and so when he derives this this dialectical way of thinking from Martin Luther he's thinking especially about Luther's doctrine of grace which is really not unique to Luther um, it's the idea I mean briefly put that you have humanity in a state of sin and misery alienated from God alienated from the divine and then you have God, divine perfection, um, who seems so distant to us. But then you have this mediating principle. It turns out, Luther says, that we have here in this life, in this fallen world, some intimation of the divine, some taste of the divine. Um, and that's what in Christian theology is called grace. And so Jorès takes this idea of grace as the kind of the the original model of dialectical thinking what's the way that the divine and the human are held in tension related to or connected to each other even while remaining distinct in this world um in every part of life he wants to look for that how are tensions how are uh, how how is tension maintained and i have to say i think that this is turns out to be a way of, a form of dialectical thinking that is much better suited than the standard version of Marxist and Hegelian dialectics, much better suited to making sense, helping us make sense of the political experiences of the left in the past century. Marx thought, or at least the, the, the version of Marx that we usually get, um, this may be an oversimplification, was that dialectical thinking meant noticing the way that attention is overcome that a tension is abolished, that a contradiction or a conflict is abolished or overcome by something new. And so the political version of that is, how are the class conflicts of capitalism going to be abolished, going to be finally, ultimately resolved? And Jaurès's kind of dialectic asks you to think instead, how are we going to survive the tensions, the class tensions, how are we going to survive the tension between the reality of capitalism and the the principles, the socialist principles of equality and solidarity, that sometimes seem distant, but that are actually mediated to us, present with us, um, in subtle
1: ways? All right. It's interesting. You you, you say that um, that Jerez was um, wanted to to absorb aspects of Marx's thought, and he traced this idea of the dialectic to to, to Martin Luther. Um, and and the, the more I'm listening to to you speak about it, the more I'm thinking about um, what Jerez was concerned about. And I, I think it, it it's interesting, this idea of, of this kind of tension, and this relates to what you were saying previously about how... Um, Jerez felt that, on the one hand, we never... We may never fully be victorious, but at the same time, we may never be fully vanquished. Um It almost seems like something out of Eastern philosophy, almost like a Buddhist idea that like when you're, you know, when something bad happens, don't be full of, 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 uh, of, uh, anger because, you know, things will, uh, won't always be bad. And when you're good things happen, don't be too overjoyed because bad things will happen too. It's a very, uh, um, I don't know, kind of interesting idea. I don't know if if um, if this is just a kind of superficial. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, this is
0: this is. I mean, he does. He's not getting it from Eastern thinkers. He's getting it from, to some extent, from Luther and Augustine, but also from Plotinus, the Neoplatonist, um, the, who is kind of the, the figure who looms large behind his first. Thesis, his dissertation on the question of whether the sensible world is real. Um, and the the argument that Jaurès makes there, which seems may seem at first like th- that it's utterly unrelated to his political thought, the argument that he makes there is something like this. We should understand, and it really is a kind of neoplatonist um, argument that in some Yeah, you could see it as bordering on some kinds of of Buddhist thought, in particular, but it also bordering on some forms of Patristic uh, uh, Christian thought as well. Um, His argument is that we should understand being, in English, we'd probably put a capital B, right? Being in the ultimate sense, as a permanent tension between actuality and potentiality. He's using terms from Aristotle, um, but he's using them in a a way really different from how Aristotle would use them, because he's talking not about, you know, the way a particular being uh, actualizes its potential, like the way an acorn becomes an oak tree, for example. He's talking about being as such. Um, The Being, is a permanent tension between what is and what could and should be. And what could and should be, being's potentiality, is a state of harmonious diversity, I guess you could say. A kind of, here's that tension between opposites again, a kind of reconciliation of individuality and community. Uh, So that all all the beings, all the constituent parts of being, want to be, have an inner drive to be, have a, a, a purpose, a telos, the Greeks would say, to be reconciled together in some kind of grand harmony of being. Um, and this turns out to be, I think, a pretty consistent uh, uh, underpinning to his political thought I mean, he even says in 1910 uh during a parliamentary debate when he's accused of being anti-religious he says actually 20 years ago i wrote a book about god and i haven't changed my mind about anything that i said in that book right that um so I, I i remind me here if i'm i think i feel i may have gone adrift from your question but
1: uh no no we're, we're swimming in the right in the right direction. Uh, but let me ask you something, shifting gears a little bit, but I think related to this issue of the political consistency of Jerez, um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about who Captain Alpha Dreyfus was and how was Jerez involved in what became known as the Dreyfus Affair? Right. Okay. So this is incidentally one of the <laughs> Jerez
0: connections that, that, well-read people today are most likely to have run into um, people outside of France. That that is, um, so Alfred Dreyfus was an officer, an artillery officer in the French military. Uh, he happened to be, just so happened to be, the only Jew on the top level of the French military. There was evidence of this is in the eighteen nineties. Uh, there's evidence of a spy um, somewhere who, who giving secrets to the Germans, the spy seems to have had knowledge of artillery secrets. There was a piece of paper somewhere that used the initial D to refer to the spy. Everyone assumes this has to be the guy. We didn't like him anyway. He's an outsider. He must be the spy. So Dreyfus is convicted. Um, and his of, of espionage he's sentenced to exile and his brother Mathieu Dreyfus works year after year to exonerate him and Jaurès at first like pretty much everyone else assumes that he's guilty that Dreyfus is guilty I mean he was convicted in court right uh, but Mathieu Dreyfus and his friends including uh, some mutual friends of his and of Jaurès uh dig up evidence, dig up evidence, re-examine the old evidence. And Jaurès ends up being convinced by by a friend of his, who was also a friend of Mathieu Dreyfus's, that the evidence was pretty shaky. And so Jaurès gets involved in the effort to reopen the case. He writes a short book called The Proof, Preuves*, absolutely demolishing the case against Dreyfus. Um, and that book really um, probably should get a, a Jaurès' book probably should get a big share of the credit for the, the shift from everybody assuming that Dreyfus is guilty to the case being reopened and Dreyfus being exonerated. But in those in-between years at the time when, when Jaurès writes this book, there's an incredible bifurcation of French politics you're either on one side or the other, you're either a Dreyfusard or an anti-Dreyfusard. You have to pick a side. And at first, many of the socialists try to resist picking a side. After all, this guy's an army officer. Why should we be sympathetic to a bourgeois army officer? He's not, he's not a worker. Um, but Jaurès argues that the, the whole point of being a socialist is not simply to stand up for the working class, Although that's part of the point. It's to stand up for justice. It's to stand up for the the ideal of a society that reconciles freedom and solidarity, freedom and community. And Dreyfus is being treated unjustly. Not because he's a worker, but for a different reason. But that doesn't matter. When you get involved in the socialist movement, Choraz tells his comrades, you're taking a stand for justice. You, You are for the workers' because you were first and foremost for justice. And that means any issue of injustice is your business. Um, So one of the really admirable things here is that Jarez takes a stand when he kind of didn't have to, when many of his friends were telling him to stay neutral, stay on the sidelines. And he he really um, becomes prominently involved. He loses re-election. This is the only the set, I, I believe the only the one of the two times in his life, maybe there was a third. I think only two times in his life when he loses a re-election bid uh, because he's seen as anti-church, maybe even unpatriotic. Um, Incidentally, that, that break from being in Parliament allows him to write a mammoth work of historical scholarship, but that's, that's another story. That people get to <laughs> but the, the, that's the admirable thing. He takes this, at some risk to his political career, he takes this stance, and he makes a difference. I mean, he, his role in exonerating Dreyfus is one of the few moments in his political career when he wins, when his side wins. I mean, part of what is so fascinating about Jerez is his almost unbroken series of defeats and uh, 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 disappointing partial victories. And he keeps going. He, the, 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 if if anybody is going to have something to say to us about the problem of hope, I think this guy just might. But the Dresden affair is one of his few victories, right? He, he makes a difference.
1: Right. And speaking of, of uh, kind of hopeless efforts, so in the, in the years before the outbreak of World War I, many socialists were concerned with the issue of how to prevent a European war. How did Jerez propose preventing such a war?
0: It's interesting that at this point, the debate between reformists and revolutionaries among socialists had pretty much died down, right? As I said before, the reformists just were told to sit down and sh- shut up, take a seat, support the team, but shut up about this reformism. And what Jorès does in the debates, and we're talking especially after 1911 or 1912, uh, the debates about international questions, is that he revives something like the reformist attitude that he'd been told to shut up about. The position that mainstream Marxists or Orthodox Marxists at that time took was, you really can't do anything about war. Capitalism leads to imperialism, which leads to war. And until we abolish capitalism, don't bother. Just, just don't bother trying to prevent particular wars because you can't do it. And Jerez characteristically said, no, we should try. Even if we can't abolish capitalism yet, we haven't figured out how to. Maybe we never will. Even if we don't know how to abolish war, we haven't figured out to. Probably we never will. We can stop a particular war. We can take what he calls an active, that's one of his favorite adjectives uh, in describing his political stance. He wants to take an active stance, meaning you figure out the modest things you actually can do and you do them. So he gets involved in diplomatic efforts, he is a friend of. He's not a member of the cabinet, the 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 governing ministry, but he's friend. He's a friend of some of the ministers, and he's doing a lot of individual lobbying to promote diplomatic efforts. He, among socialists, he argues for the position that if your country launches an offensive war, an aggressive war, you should have a mass strike of some kind as a way to, to bring, try to bring the war to a halt. Um, if your country is fighting a defensive war, that's a different story. If your country is the the victim of aggression, you you defend your country, especially if your country is a republic, because then you have something, however flawed, your the French Republic may be, it's worth defending. But you can you look for ways to foment mass protest in the event of an aggressive a war of aggression, um, which by the way may not have been realistic. I mean, I. I think I noted in the book that the one time in those years, 1911, if my memory is correct, when something like that was tried, there were mass strikes in Italy after Italy declared war on the Ottoman Empire. And it didn't work. The war went on. The war went on. There just weren't enough uh, uh, organized leftists, enough workers involved in socialist allied unions, for example, to be able to pull that off. But the principle at stake... I think is interesting that Jerez was insisting that, you know, in an ironic way, we might think of revolutionary socialism as the ultimate activist politics. But I think Jerez's point in the reformism debates and in the debates about international questions was that ostensibly revolutionary political views often lead you to be passive because you're waiting for the revolution. Nothing short of revolution is really that interesting to you. You're, you're going to look down your nose at um, mere reforms or mere anti-war protests against particular wars. You want to abolish capitalism. You want to abolish war, and nothing short of that is good. And so, Goudeau, when he take in taking what he calls an active political stance, says. You look for anything that might work. Maybe it's high-level diplomacy. Maybe it's street protests. You do whatever you can. Uh,
1: right, right. And, and and speaking of patriotism, how did Jerez feel about patriotism in general and citizen militias in particular?
0: One of those uh, tensions that he wants to hold is the tension between patriotism and internationalism. The highest... Values and ideals, solidarity, community, equality, um, humanity, if you think of that as a principle, humaneness, these are these are universal ideals, right? They, they suggest a, an internationalist politics in the sense that you're not only concerned with people of, of your own country, but at the same time, because Jaurès insists that ideals are realized in concrete Actions in specific times and places, specific institutions or organizations, specific policies. He's always concerned with with his immediate surroundings. I live in France. I live in the French. I'm a citizen of the French Republic. This is my home. It's as good a place as any to work for justice, to work for solidarity and community. And that means I have to have some affection for the political forums, the political spaces, the memberships, the the belonging with fellow citizens through which I'm working on these grand ideals. So that's how he wants to hold the two together. Um, he says somewhere that... Uh, I'm going to have to paraphrase. I don't think I can quote it from memory. That We shouldn't look to a hazy ideal of humanity in the abstract as the, the, the way that we realize the highest human ideals. It's always in concrete and graspable human groups, he says, that we can have an apprenticeship for life in common, right? That we can have a, a moral training in... Well, being humane, right? You've got to look to the local and the... So I, I said patriotism and nationalism, but notice here there's also a tension between patriotism and more local forms of attachment and belonging and participation. That's the other tension here. Um, he's He's invested in the institutions of the french republic but he's not a jacobin in the ideological sense common in french politics of thinking that the the nation state is the one membership that matters he's in many ways closer to the prudanian tradition of local decentralized participation so anyways you've got these this double tension right patriotism and internationalism patriotism and local belonging and his Jerez's most ambitious proposal for a policy change, for institutional reform, to thinking about both of these tensions, was the idea that a professional army, or as people at that time said, a standing army, ought to be replaced by a citizen militia. He thought that, number one, a citizen militia would be pretty lousy at aggressive war. Because <laughs> soldiers would, would not want to leave home, right? You, you do your regular every f- year or so. You have a couple of two or three weeks of military training, you know, but you're basically living a civilian life. You're attached to your home and family and fellow workers and so forth, your neighbors. You don't want to go marching off into some other country to, to kill fellow workers there. You're going to resist, uh, so, it, it's going to be a lousy army for, for aggressive war, and it's going to be really, really good at defensive war because people will be literally fighting for their homes. Literally fighting for their homes. Not fighting for some other city in the country that they never hurt and you know, had never visited before they were in military service, but fighting for their homes. And so, that a modest sized country like France. Um, I don't know what the numbers are now, but at the time, Germany, France's most likely opponent in a war, had a population something like 50% bigger than France. So, of course, they had a bigger army. They were also more industrialized than France. Um, If France was going to resist any German invasion, they would have to make up for their modest military force with something else. And Jaurès called it moral force. He thought a citizen militia in which people are serving in a decent, military military organization would be decentralized town by town. People would be serving to defend their own homes, literally, at least most of the time they would be. Um, And the moral education that they received, the, the, the influences on their thinking and feeling would come mostly from civilian life. He really worried about what, and this is getting back to the Dreyfus Affair in a sense, he worried about the consequences for a a political community of having a professionalized military that was cut off from the life of the nation, sequestered in its barracks, living a life of its own, developing attitudes of its own, interests of its own. And he thought that part of what they'd seen in the Dreyfus Affair was a military hierarchy that was just not that concerned about anything outside itself. They wanted it wanted to defend its own honor. We accused this guy of espionage and it turns out that he's guilty. Time for a cover up. I'm sorry, it turns out that he's not. I mean, it turns out that he's innocent. I said that backwards. Time for a cover up because the honor of the military has to be defended. Right. So it's that kind of military with interests of institutional interests of its own that he wants to avoid. And he does that with the, in this vision by having in a way that's patriotic because it's about national defense. It's internationalist because it's it's a model of the military that won't be good at, at aggressive war, but it's also localist because the soldiers would be living most of their lives at home.
1: Right. Well, there's so much more to talk about, but we are running out of time for today. Um, the last question is, uh, you uh, wrote and you mentioned um, today that Jerez, even though he Uh, Was murdered 108 years ago, uh, he can still contribute something to contemporary social democratic politics. What do you see as Jerez's possible contemporary contribution?
0: In my mind, the key thing, two things which are related, are his particular idea of what dialectical thinking is that holding apparent opposites in tension or trying to bridge the tensions between apparent opposites. And related to that, his idea of political hope. Um, and they're related because his idea of hope, again, is that if you see the ideal as being present within the real, in modest, Hidden subtle ways, then you can find a kind of moral sustenance in everyday life, in everyday politics, in small victories, or even just in the effort of political engagement, the work of organizing, the work of persuasion. Uh, you can find some sustenance in that. Um, you know, it's interesting that the dialectics, I, I, we were talking about internationalism and patriotism, patriotism and localism. One of the dialectics that he tries to bridge one of the tensions that he tries to bridge that he doesn't succeed at is one that's kind of been haunting our conversation which is that between religion and secularity or secularism Um, and this is I i think as he sees it one of the tragedies of the dreyfus affair that on the one side you had the church the roman catholic church as an institution and on the other side you had the left the labor movement, the socialist movement, and that sense that you had to pick a side between those two. Um, from his point of view, that's really tragic. I mean, he's not personally religious in the, in the sort of reciting the creed, orthodoxy, going to church sense, but he has a, definitely a non-secular sensibility. I mean, if you for, for for you or other readers who've read Charles Taylor's work on secularism, I think Juarez is a great example of someone who's caught in the cross pressures of secularity and and religion. And so, anyway, so that's that's a, maybe a particularly important example. But I think that idea that you have to try to bridge tensions, you have to f- find the cross pressures and stay in them. Uh, there's probably a nautical metaphor here, but I don't know enough about sailing to do it right. You have to live in those cross-pressures, right? Seek them out. Um, that, I think, is one of the most inspiring and, and useful pieces of his intellectual legacy.
1: Uh, I, I lied, I lied. I, I, I have to ask you one more question. Um, so, given what you were just saying about uh, you know, emphasizing um, this, the, the idea of the dialectic, the idea of, of hope for Jerez coming from um, you know, these imperfections and 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 incompleteness and, and all this kind of thing. And even as you say, with, with the Dreyfus affair, he seemed disturbed that you had to pick a side. I, I wonder if in some ways, um, part of why Jerez himself and his thought has not, um uh uh remained um, uh, uh, well known even though as you argue there's a great amount of richness in there both in the style and the substance of his thought but the fact that he hasn't remained uh sort of topical you know something that that people uh, uh, people on the left or even scholars are really engaging with um I wonder if if at least in part it's due to the fact that in Sort of left wing politics, um, you know, there's this idea that's uh, 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 exemplified by the famous um, uh, socialist song, Which Side Are You On? You know, that in in the struggle between the classes, there's there's the 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 the, the owners and the workers. There's the 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 one percent and the ninety nine percent. You know there is this great struggle, and you have to pick a side. You can't be somewhere in the middle and not to well, in say. Some
0: ways, some ways that's true. I mean, remember that what that song is about is are you with the workers or the bosses, right? If you're talking about connections with particular people, I think Shores would say, yeah, you got it. If you have a a conflict between the oppressed and the oppressors, you pick a side, you know, which side you're on. I mean, in this sense, he's talking about something sort of like what the great Italian Christian socialist in Salone calls the choice of comrades. When it comes to human connection, right? You think about your connections. But when it comes to um, ideas, abstractions, you might need to find some surprising bridges, right? Um, And so, yeah, I think you're right that there has been a tendency uh, in much of the left to to, uh, take on wholeheartedly that kind of Jacobin enlightened kind of binary. Uh, And this is even more so in in France. I mean, I think part of why Jaurès isn't better known as a thinker is that the French remember him as a martyr and a moral hero. And until recent years, there's been some shift in this, by the way, uh, until recently have not been that interested in him as a thinker. Um, And if you want, you know, and so he's been the French left has never been Jaurésian. I guess, is the way I would put it, right? He's, he's admired, but not, re- not thought about. Uh, and, and I think that in France and outside France, he's worth thinking about.
1: Right. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.